Uh, greetings and welcome to the Asian American and Asian Research Institute's final lecture series. Uh, my name is Anthony Wong, Program Coordinator of the Institute. Thank you for joining us uh, on this the f very few days, last few days of summer uh, <laughs> and the pending storm. Uh, but thank you for joining us tonight for uh, our book talk on Creating Identity, the Popular Romance Heroine's Journey to Selfhood and Self-Representation. Oh, self-presentation by uh, Jayashri Jaya Kemble from uh, LaGuardia Community College. Uh, the book was recently published in, not April, but June 2023 by Indiana University Press, and the paperback is available online for purchase for $32. So please go visit the website afterwards or visit your local bookstore. Barnes & Noble is nearby over here. <laughs> Jayashri Kemble is professor of English at LaGuardia Community College. Uh, Professor Kemble is the author of Making Meaning in Popular Romance Fiction and Epistemology, uh, which was released in 2014. And she is the co-editor of the Rutledge Research Companion to Popular Romance Fiction in 2021. Uh, she serves as the president of the International Association for the Study of Popular Romance. Uh, since completing her second book, which she, she's presenting on tonight, Creating Identity, uh, Professor Kemble is now working on a history of BIPOC romance uh, with the research supported by an American Council of Learned uh, Societies and Mellon Fellowship and also a CUNY Black Race and Ethnic Studies grant. Uh, please welcome Professor Kemble. Thank you all for coming, and thank you to folks who are also online. My uh, thought is that I'll maybe talk for about 45 minutes or so, and we'll maybe entertain you with some images uh, so that you're not super bored. Um, I have been to academic talks myself. <laughs> um, and I've got a little timer on to keep me um, on track. And then we'll take uh, questions uh, if you folks have any after that. So um, the, the book sort of comes out of a, pretty much a lifetime uh, at this point of research. But I formally started studying uh, romance novels in my dissertation uh, life at the University of Minnesota around 2002. So I've been doing it formally as well for over 20 years at this point. And um, this particular book, as with many academic projects, came out of the last book. So I was finishing up my book in roughly 2014, which came out of my dissertation, and um, that book is focusing on romance heroes because it always felt like the forum has a reputation for being about women, written by women, mostly focusing on the desires of women, etc., and I thought that the romance hero, because a lot of mainstream romance fiction is cis and het, had been under-theorized, and so that's why I devoted my dissertation and my first book to talking about the hero. But towards the end of that book, I thought, well, I think at this point I do need to take on the heroine as well. And that's where this sort of book's genesis comes from. So, again, those of you who are familiar with academic writing, these things can take a very long time. And essentially the seeds of this began around 2013. And so it's been about a decade in the making. So my um, apologies to those of you who have heard me talk about this at various points in the last years at different conferences, but folks like that have also, of course, helped me formulate my ideas and made them better. So also thanks to those people. Something or think they know what popular romance novels are or have 
identify as a romance reader since we're talking identity there's there's my colleague Anne it's like raising her hand maybe there are folks online who are doing it too um but I just wanted to quickly start because I wasn't sure the composition of the room and folks uh, also online if people would have a sense of what I'm talking about before I get into the details of it so um Romance as a literary form has a long history, several hundred years. Um, in the novel form, a lot of people identify it with Jane Austen, even the Brontes, etc. But when I talk about romance novels, I'm really looking at a form that is about 100 years old. So I'm looking at mass market commercial romance fiction, um, typically written by women and oftentimes read by women, folks who identify as women, though not, of course, exclusively so. And... Uh, as far as the actual publishing history of this form is concerned, most romance scholars, we think of it as starting around 1908 from certain British publishing companies, the most famous of which is called Mills and Boone. And it's very that it's a brand that's recognized in the former British Empire and continues to exist today. Um, on this part of the pond, the side of the Atlantic, people actually know it by the term Harlequin. And so Harlequin, which is uh, originally a Canadian company, became a sort of a partner for Mills and Boone somewhere around the 50s, 60s, and then eventually bought them out. And so now that form is really associated with that brand Harlequin. But Harlequin Mills and Boone is one sort of giant company. Um, and that's kind of the origins of the form that I'm studying and that my book is sort of interested in. So it's mass market category romance novels. Um, and I've given you a few images to sort of give you a sense of the span uh, of these books. So you get some that are, you know, like from the 40s, even before. Um, and then sort of the form, you can see all its different iterations there. Um, the, <laughs> the form kind of like stakes its power and starts off in Britain, in the UK, but after World War II, it becomes bigger with the rise of the paperback revolution. That's where the mass market idea really sort of blossoms. And once Harlequin starts to reprint some of these novels from Britain in and distribute them in North America and starts to notice how well they sell, they sort of exclusively start to focus on it, as does Mills and Boone. Though Mills and Boone originally was also a general publisher. They published uh, science textbooks. They t published people like Jack London, but eventually realized that this was something that was really, really a big seller. And so they focused exclusively on the marriage plot and the courtship and what Pamela Regis, the scholar of romance, calls sort of the betrothal, like commitment between a couple, typically a straight couple. Um, and what happens is, if you'll see the middle book over there, Entwined Destinies by Rosalind Wells, roughly around the end of the 70s, the market power shifts away both from Britain and to some extent even from Canada towards New York publishing houses. And part of that shift that's happening is caused uh, and brought about by a couple of Black women romance editors who intervene in the market. And so Antoine Destinies actually, at, at the moment, as far as we know, has the distinction of being the first Black romance novel in mass market category of romance fiction. And that was because of the efforts of Vivian Stevens, who was a Black romance editor at the time. And so these small houses start to sort of eat away a little bit at the market share of uh, Mills and Boone and Harlequin, and American romance publishing starts to become a bigger deal over time. Um, some of the most iconic images that even people who don't know anything about re romance recognize is 
the one that you'll see at the bottom over there. Folks who are my age or older will recognize the man with the flowing hair, the fabulous Fabio, uh, the Italian model who graced the covers of many, many romance novels. Um, and I also chose that cover both because it's sort of an iconic image. It's called the clinch cover. Um, but also because you all start to see another shift that happens when American romance publishing gets bigger, which is that things start to um, shift a little bit away from these books where the brand is very, very important, very prominent, the Mills and Boone Harlequin brand, and the author's name is smaller. And even like the title is not something people really remember as much. What the uh, happens over here is that the brand itself starts to become smaller. It's the name of the author and this like recognition of what's in the text and the name of the book itself starts to become prominent. So that's also a thing that really happens when once American romance publishing gets bigger. Um, the piece over there uh, with the red shirt, um, Nora Roberts, um, she is an American romance author at this point, in many ways, probably the most successful American romance author ever. There are millions of her books in print. Um, things that she published in the 80s continue to be reprinted today. Um, and she initially wanted to write for the big, you know, the big folks in the market, which was Harlequin, and they wouldn't publish her work. They said, we have, we don't really publish Americans. We have one American author that's good enough for us. And so she went to their rival, which started at roughly around um, 1981, which was Silhouette Romance. And so that's where she got her start. I also chose that cover because it's relevant to my book and to the idea of women and identity. Because you'll see, it's one of the covers that only has a woman on it. And so it is very much a very classic romance novel. Nora Roberts is, she's sort of responsible for creating in many ways, a particular version of American romance. But as you can see from that cover, like it really holds up the female character. And she's kind of like, you know, the power suit uh, figure, right? Like you can see the <laughs> the shoulders. She's surrounded by important looking documents and uh, she's a lawyer. And this is one of the sort of first series that became very popular in romance fiction. So that's Rachel Stanislavski and it's a whole family uh, about whom she writes a number of different books. So now people think Bridgerton, but this is sort of like where this actually originates. So it's people like Nora Roberts who started the Stanislavski family and she has many, many other sort of family series. And so Rachel is one of them. She's a lawyer, sort of high powered. So Robert starts in this sort of category romance uh, group and then really becomes a breakout person and eventually is even today sold with her name being very prominent rather than the series itself. Um, next to her, Susan Elizabeth Phillips. Again, you can see the author is really prominent. So Books like the the Lindsay and eventually Nora Roberts, the Susan Elizabeth Phillips, we start to distinguish them from these books, which we call category romance novels, because the category and the brand is so important. So they're sold as Harlequins or they're sold as a silhouette, much more than the individual author. But when publishers start to really push the author itself, because the author becomes a brand and the author's particular kind of romance storytelling becomes very popular and recognizable and in demand, those books we tend to refer to as single titles. And so Elizabeth Phillips is one of those folks who's writing what's called contemporary romance, as is Nora Roberts, whereas this one is a historical romance. And um, 
you can see from again the paratext, which is the cover and the images over there, that it's supposed to be like light and funny and cool because she's like wearing pants and at the same time she has high heels and there's like a cupcake and so all all kinds of signaling about like cuteness but also power but also like women doing different things etc. Um, you can see is sort of conveyed in that kind of um, paratext over there, and then I picked. In Moon by Ji Lin. Um, Lin is Asian American, and a lot of these novels that she's writing, they're historical uh, romance. They're set oftentimes in um, different parts of uh, Chinese, different time in Chinese history, and her characters are often sort of part of um, aristocratic and or, you know, in some relationship to the imperial dynasties or aristocrats. Uh, kind of thing. So she has like versions of the Cinderella story, etc. So um, this is relatively new, so to speak, in the hundred years of the form. The form has typically been extremely white, um, but there are um, writers who are making inroads into that. So even Harlequin is now having a little bit more ethnic and racial diversity in in the text uh, that was originally a very standardized, fairly homogeneous uh, form. But as you can see, in all of them, the heroine occupies a pretty prominent place. And so, again, that's partly why I decided that some theorization around the concept of the heroine itself was necessary, because otherwise, in our field and certainly among readers, we use the term heroine very casually and all of us sort of accept it without really theorizing what does that even mean? And why do we use the term? So I wanted to like, because I'm a nerd, right? Like I was like, what, are the, what do we do with that term? Why do we use it? Does it mean she's heroic in some way? Or do we just use it as a synonym for main female character, right? Because we don't even notice that we're using it till somebody who's not necessarily a romance reader hears us. And then they go, oh, really? So you use the term heroine for all main female characters in a love story? And I was like, yeah, huh. Okay, so you know how it is, like when you're really immersed in a particular form, you don't even realize sometimes that you're doing something which to an outsider seems like worthy of like being unpacked. And so that's kind of what I'm doing here. Um, and just for the record, my particular, um, my book, and for the most part, the history of the form has either, well, has always been about straight couples, right? It's one man and one woman, and in fact, wasn't put into the Romance Writers of America at some point as the the pairing, right? Like, this is how we understand the form. That has changed, uh, fortunately, in the last, let's say, at least 20 years or so. We're seeing more mainstreaming of queer narratives. We're seeing more um, polyamorous relationships. So we're seeing things shifting. But um, by and large, the female main character has always been the one whose story people have followed. Right? That's what's been published. And so that's why I'm sort of focusing on that character. But this is not to say that male-male romances, which are two um, two men, could be sometimes cis, could be trans men, uh, aren't being published. They are. It's just I don't have the chops yet to accurately do an analysis of those. Right. So this is why right now, at least, the book is about a very specific subset. Um. I thought I would talk for a little bit about what this sort of theory uh, that I was coming up with, partly because in my 
the peer review process, which all academic books have to go through, people are like, well, are you sure these are romance novels? Because I don't know, like that doesn't seem like a romance novel to me. So I thought, let me talk a little bit about why I picked the novels that I did and what my understanding of romance is and how flexible it can be. So um, overall, what I'm doing in the book is I have five chapters and each of them analyzes two different romance novels. So I have 10 case studies, so to speak, in which I talk about different aspects of the romance heroine. And I'm essentially talking about her journey and how what's happening in pretty much every romance novel I see that has a heroine in it is a is a phenomenon that has to do with a representation of a real world problem, which in most parts of the world where the patriarchy exists, but also where it's been challenged, women consistently get faced with a false binary or false dichotomy which is they're told you can be either this or that. You cannot be both, right? So the very classic one that most of us know is the virgin whore binary, right? You can be like completely chaste or, or, you know, you're a completely fallen woman. That somehow you can't be a good person and a sexual person at the same time, right? So that false binary, eternal, is there all the time. So that's only one of the false binaries that I'm examining. I see like a false binary that is around the issue of gender and how women can present and whether they are seen as competent if they present in a way that is, you know, kind of cute or if they're seen as incompetent because they're, they've got pretty hair or they're wearing heels, right? So there's issues that come up that are similar, right? Same sort of push of the false binary on women. Um, and you see these false dichotomies, these false binaries being challenged in romance novels. So this is sort of the primary kind of battle that I'm interested in that I see across a range of different romance novels, even though in some ways they might seem like they are not the core romantic love story that Mills and, Mills and Boone started initially, right? So the genre has changed a lot. And so I ended up drawing, this is my own crude drawing representation. My publisher was like, tell me whose copyright it is so we can get permission. I was like, no, no, it's me. And it's it's my bad representation. But I think it's kind of an interesting way to think about it. So my idea is that some of the romance novels that I've chosen are very close to the center of like sort of the pure form of the love story. So the, the main journey there really is about the love plot, the marriage plot, like finding a mate, keeping a mate, being happy with the mate. And so Love in the Valley is one of the classic so the Harlequin Mills and Boons from 1984 that does that very tightly. It's 188 pages, which is the average length of a Harlequin romance. And even today, Harlequins like stay within that page limit. Generally speaking, there's some lines that are bigger. Um, and the, the plot is very, very tight. Like you couple meets, couple maybe have an argument, couple eventually figures out their problems and then they get together. Right. So it stays very tightly within that plot. So for a lot of people like, that is a romance novel uh, itself. But what I'm arguing is that over time, the heroine has started to do all kinds of different things. And that's why like, I've picked uh, novels that can go away in some ways from this main center, this kind of tight love plot, and you get the urban fantasy romance. So the Fever series, which is towards the outer circle there, right? it's the orbit is very big and quite far from what people otherwise might think of the core romance novel. But in that one, we're seeing a woman who's battling a false dichotomy 
right? In her, in the case study I'm looking at, she's like battling the dichotomy of if you're a pretty blonde, you're going to die in the fight, right? And she's sort of resisting that idea, which again, to me, is representing a real world problem of women being told, you want to run for president? Got to wear a pantsuit, right? Or if I see you dancing in a club, we're going to say, oh, that's not the right person to be a politician, right? So that real world problem I'm seeing sort of reflected in books like that but there may be people who are like, wait, that's not really a romance novel. I'm like, no, there, there is actually a love plot in there as well, right? It's just like being done in a very different kind of environment and a different kind of space. So that book actually takes place in an alternate Dublin in Ireland where a young blonde um, goes to find some answers and encounters all sorts of paranormal activity. So I have a range of different texts, all of which to me are tied together by the idea of women finding love, but their bigger journey also being about finding their own broken pieces, which different forces in the world tell them cannot be together, that they are incompatible and the women have to choose and they consistently refuse that choice and say, no, no, I can have all of it. This is the structure I actually need in order for my, all my parts to come together. So my desire to have all my parts together is not wrong, it's the world that doesn't allow it to come together. That's the problem. And this is how we fix that. Right. And because of that impulse and because of that desire, what is happening, I think, to the genre that is originally this sort of core story is that it is forming series and it's forming different subgenres. So like I said, that one is part of the paranormal romance subgenre, whereas this one is a speculative sci-fi police procedural, essentially. So it's set in 2058, and our main protagonist is a cop in the New York Public, well, in the New York Police and Security Department in the year 2058. So it's actually a series at this point that's, I think, up to 57 books, Probably. maybe. <laughs> I think it might be more, actually. <laughs> um, and they're written by Nora Roberts under a different pen name. And so for uh, the, the love plot is still there and it's a very strong love plot, but it starts in the first book and they're kind of married by the third book. And so the rest of the love plot is actually a post-wedding love story. And so it's different from something like that, which ends at the wedding. And so um, what I'm theorizing is that uh, both romance readers and romance writers understand that the love plot is a real draw for us and it's a real desire, but there are other parts of our identity that we are also trying to see represented. And oftentimes there's a long struggle before those things can actually come together. And so that's why we're getting these long series. So we can see the romance heroine continue to act over different stages of her narrative life. And we can see her at different ages and we can see how she gets pleasure and identity from different things even uh, including, but beyond the love plot. And that's why we're getting series. That's why we're getting subgenres. And so another way I've represented that in the book is by talking about some novels that are very recognizable as like the pure love story, a very core love story. So some of them are in this column, but there are definitely novels I've included that have this core phenomenon. But at the same time, we're seeing the heroines acting in other kinds of plots simultaneously. So the in-depth series that I just mentioned, um, but also some of the others, which are some are murder mysteries, some are espionage novels, um, some are wuxia, and I'm going to talk about the wuxia novel a little bit more in detail because we're at Ari. Um, and so 
that's kind of like the corpus that I've chosen. And I mentioned this clearly because how did you choose these novels is always a question that's asked, especially for genres that are so massive. So romance novels, hundreds are published every year, and it's been for a for hundred years. So I think it's a legitimate question, and I really wanted to sort of address it in the book uh, right off the bat. And I was also trying to give other scholars, especially junior scholars, another sort of methodology to be able to tackle this, because otherwise it's very overwhelming for people to like figure out how do I talk about the genre, because there's so much in there. I can't really make claims for all of it, but if I only study one, then, you know, is that useful in any way? So this is an example of what's called purpose of heterogeneous sampling, which is what I've used over there. So something that helps me talk about a phenomenon that is true, I think, for most of the genre. But it also allows me to look at individual texts because at heart, I'm an English literature scholar. And what I love to do is unpack sentences and see like what's happening in this scene, right? Like, let's understand what's happening there. Um, but also because I am a culture studies scholar, my training is in studying ideologies. Um, what I've done is I've divided up the book into five different chapters. So there's a chapter on sexuality, which, as I said at the beginning, it's an exploration of a core phenomenon that women face in society all the time, even today, even despite uh, second wave feminism, which is the issue of a woman's goodness being tied to her sexuality. Right. Is she a good woman? Is she not? Is she sexual? Is she not? If she is sexual, is that a bad thing? And if she isn't sexual, sometimes even that's a bad thing, right? Like there's an age beyond which you should not be, you know, asexual. And the, then you get criticized for that too, right? Like you're not participating in what the culture tells you to do. And so I've chosen these two books to talk about it. So this one, like I said, is a very classic one from 1984. You have a virgin heroine in this one, and this was fairly standard for romance but for a long time. Not so much anymore, but you can still see occasionally uh, virgin heroine. So that's 2008. Um, I actually chose two covers for that one just to give you all something fun to look at, but also to say that this is the first cover of Present Cold's Dark Desires After Dusk, which, again, if you're thinking about uh, uh, my study, which is about romance heroines, that's a little misleading, right? Because it only highlights the man. And he has like a, I don't even know, 12 pounds? I, 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 I don't know if that's anatomically possible. Um, but when they reprinted it, and these books get reprinted a lot, they're very uh, popular. Uh, it's called the Immortals After Dark series. Uh, Dark Desires After Dusk does get reprinted, and you can see her wielding a sword. Um, so this one I chose because she's also a virgin, but in this one, so in this one, the problem is that she doesn't present as virginal. She's very, like, kind of flirty, and so the hero reads her as a promiscuous woman and treats her poorly because of that. And then he finds out she is a virgin and freaks out because then he's like, oh, no, now she will fall in love with me if we have sex. I got to run out of this. Right. So he has these like really deferring responses to her virginity where she is just like, I've never wanted to have sex with anyone. And now I want to have sex with you. What is the problem? Right. Like she doesn't understand the way he's channeling all these ideologies and imposing them on her. So I think this is an interesting way to think about the virginity issue and sexuality in romance and the heroine's own search for identity and for pushing back against how other people read her as a sexual being. Um, in Dark Desires, this book is great. Um, I chose this one because the character is actually an academic. She's a computational mathematics grad student in uh, University, I think, in Louisiana. 
And uh, she is a virgin, even though she experiences very strong sexual desire, but the backstory that given is that when she was a teenager, she got a little too enthusiastic and her boyfriends would all get scared and run away. <laughs> so, which to me is also an interesting metaphor, again, for female sexuality, right? Like you expect it to be sexy, but not really sexual, right? Like you got to lay back and let dudes do the thing. And so she's kind of gotten burned from men, men's reactions to her actual sexual desire. And so she's like, just become celibate. All she does is her math. She's like a total nerd. Um, and I thought that was kind of a hilarious representation by romance author of academics because we've not always had the best relationship. Uh, romance authors and academics, it's, it's been a little tricky. So I thought she was being a little cheeky over there as well. But um, the character eventually realizes, and this is why it's a paranormal romance, she realizes or she's told that she is in fact a Valkyrie and she was adopted and so she's never known that part of her heritage and so part of her sort of forceful sexuality comes from that heritage and so the the person who like helps her figure this out is the dude the shirtless dude who is in fact a demon um and so she like enters into kind of a buffy-esque world where there's like valkyries who are her family members and there's demons like the man that she gets attracted to etc. And it sets up this like really fascinating world, again, sort of a metaphor for kind of structures that are necessary for women to not feel like their sexuality is scary to people, and that it is completely possible for her to express it and be a math nerd at the same time. Like those two things are not incompatible, they're not mutually exclusive. And it takes this other world to actually give her that assurance for her to be able to put all those parts of her together. So I thought that was like an interesting sort of way to think about sexuality. Okay, the next chapter is about gender and I'm sort of taking on again a very sort of classic binary, especially when it comes to competence. So again, like I mentioned earlier, if you're going to be like a power player, either in business or in politics or whatever, we know that the discourse often is you have to dress in a certain way right? You can't look frivolous. You can't look cute. You can't, you have to look very professional. And in many ways, you have to imitate what is like a male silhouette. Yeah, you have to look serious. You can't have, you know, certain kinds of makeup. You can't laugh a certain way, etc. Um, and then the um, ideal, of course, that we see in so much of our culture, which is, if you're cute in a certain way, chances are you're going to die. Um, that those two things somehow are not compatible. And so both of these books, this one is a murder mystery. That one is also the one I mentioned that takes place in Dublin. That's a paranormal. Uh, and that's a series. This one is the first of a two book series that Howard did. Um, and coincidentally, both of the characters, the female characters are Southern, like from, I think, Georgia um, and maybe North Carolina. And in both cases, they're like the Southern Belle. So in many ways, a very sort of classic understanding of like, the pretty female gender that comes out of also a racial hierarchy. And so both of them get this messaging that A, you're incompetent, B, you're stupid, and C, you're probably going to die while trying to figure out these very complicated questions because there's murders to solve and there's demons to battle and so on. And so they keep being told by the men that they encounter that they're not going to be successful because they're too cute and they're clearly stupid, that that cuteness and that stupidity go together. And so both of them are kind of battling against that stereotype of this idea that you've got to be more butch if you really want to be competent in this world, if you want to actually be intelligent in this world. You're not allowed to be wearing cute clothes while doing this. And they both sort of refuse. And they both are very successful at 
keep holding on to the kinds of gender presentation they want to do and still solving the case or still battling the evil that they're encountering. And in both cases, the the male love interest and or the other folks that they encounter have to bend to what the heroine wants. Like she manages to un- get them to understand that this is something that she is capable of doing. So that's a way for me to sort of think about the gender binary and some of the false dichotomies about gender presentation that keep coming up for women and in the texts. Um, the third chapter is about work, about labor, sort of always interested in the working of capitalism. This is a commercial fiction form. It's deeply entwined with the market and with the understanding of the market, especially women's place in the market, but also when it comes to labor and women's domestic labor, the labor that is devalued, the labor that is unpaid. Um, and uh, in this case, I decided to pick this book, partly because I love it. It's also a classic, so I think it will be useful for people who often teach uh, dreaming of you in their classes to sort of use this part of the chapter as a model. But um, I also picked it because Cleopas has her female character be um, uh, a writer of very popular novels in the 19th century. So it's a Victorian romance novel where the main character is a writer and she's very popular. And so she encounters a lot of assumptions from other people, from her family members, from the little town in which she's like actually living, and then from her readers who don't know her personally, have only known her work. And so it allows Claypass to do these wonderful things that are essentially metaphors for what it's like to be a female creative person, but especially to be a writer of romance novels that are very popular. And the way that romance writers encounter stigma, sneering, lack of respect, um, and oftentimes how it's seen as not actually being real work. Uh, and so you get a lot of those uh, narrative threads coming up in um, Dreaming of You with this female author character. And so that's why I thought, like, let's talk about labor by having this book, which is really a metaphor for the labor of being an author, but also can function to help us think about what kind of female work do we value and devalue. And again, like in all of the other books I've talked about too, there is really a resistance to getting other people to define if your labor has value or not. And whether your your identity as X, Y, and Z, right? So her identity in this case as an author is something that she really sort of puts her foot down on, even though she's otherwise a very gentle kind of character, not somebody who's very combative. But she holds on to what she understands her identity to be in her, the value of her labor to be. Um, whereas the other one is that series I mentioned, the murder mystery, uh, police procedural, speculative fiction, sci-fi, billionaire romance series written by Nora Roberts under the pen name J.D. Robb. That's the one that's gone into whatever, 57 whatever books now. But it started originally with Naked and Death in 1995. Um, I also thought those covers were kind of hilarious because that one and that one look very similar in terms of the color schemes. But at the same time, that's very clearly like supposed to be like a pot boiler or hard boiled detective, you know, like a dead body lying over there uh, kind of image. But oddly, somehow they're very similar looking and they come out pretty close to 94 and 1995. So Nora Roberts at this point is hugely popular under her name, Nora Roberts, tons and tons of books out there. She decides that she wants to do something different and her her editor, I think, or her agent is like, we cannot flood the market with more Nora Roberts novels. As it is, she usually publishes two books under the Nora Roberts pen name every year. 
So this, well, you, you can't have more of you in the market. Like it will really like do something to your brand. And so that's why she chose a very sort of androgynous, gender neutral name. And then they published uh, these books. And so Eve Dallas is our main character. Sometimes I call them the Eve Dallas series. And she's a cop. And in the first book she meets, and then in the second or third book, eventually she marries this extremely rich man. Like he's a billionaire uh, in 2058 New York. He owns multiple planets because that's what we've done, I guess. At that point. Um, and so to me, that book is, that series is interesting because she herself identifies and presents very much as a working class person. And so that's why like the issue of class is interesting to me. So um, her uh, the aesthetics of her space, the self-presentation itself, the way, the kinds of things she likes to eat, like she like loves to eat French fries and drinks Pepsi all the time. Like she's very much presenting as a particular kind of working class, uh, dare I say, New York City employee kind of personality. And when she marries, the typical journey, right, would be that once you marry somebody rich like that, you become the corporate wife, right? You give up your job, you like, you know, wear the whatever pearls and diamonds and, you know, host parties. And she absolutely refuses. And the entire series, he's the one who stops his, as she keeps saying like buying and selling a small planets in order to help her while she's solving the cases. So it's really a love story, which imagines that her work continues to be primary as the driving force of the plot throughout those 50 something novels. Like he, he's the one who helps her out. He's the one who makes sure she gets fed while she's still continuing to do her job. And because they live in this speculative sci-fi universe, part of the reason she's allowed to do all this or she can do all this is like everything is automated. Like she doesn't have domestic tasks. Like she doesn't know how to do it. She doesn't know how to cook. She doesn't clean. She doesn't, you know, handle her clothes. Everything is really done either by her husband or his butler. Uh, her husband is essentially Batman, by the way, just so you know. Um, so he has a butler um, who also does things for her. And then they have like robots to take care of stuff. So it's again, it's like imagining how women's labor otherwise intervenes to stop their other kinds of aspirations. And what the, what would it take? For that to shift and like what are the other structures that we should imagine in order to allow this to be a reality right so it's constantly posing these other kinds of worlds for us um and reminding us i, I think and at least to me that this is really the only place in pop culture that tries to imagine what a full integrated woman's life looks like it doesn't exist anywhere else um i was actually just i think uh seeing an ad for American Horror Story, the new uh, uh, season, I think, is starting. And I haven't seen it, and I probably won't. I'm chicken. But from what I can tell from the ad, it's really about a woman who wants to have a professional life and wants to have a child. And clearly, there's going to be demonic possession of some kind, right? So this is the only way we can imagine women having those two aspects of their life together, right? The demons have to come in, right? And, like, do something horrible. Whereas, like, there are Texan romance, which are like, no, actually, this is not that out of the question. Like, there are ways we can reimagine so women can have all these parts of themselves. Um, the only other thing I'll mention about that, and I'm very close to my time, is that... Um, those books were starting to be written just around the time that Giuliani was cleaning up New York City. And so a lot of the police procedural stuff actually borrows from broken windows policing. So for those of you who are familiar with that time, with Bill Bratton and the whole idea of how you had to like gather all the data and make sure that you like clean up the neighborhoods and make sure that you predict where the crime is going to happen and like stop people from crossing a profile. So a lot of that, which is actually a 
a form of functioning that comes out of corporate capitalism gets applied to policing and the way that people's bodies then get policed. And so she never gives up her status uh, in order to become a corporate wife, but a lot of the corporate functioning actually enters into the way she does her policing in the text. So that's a weird kind of tension, I think, that I'm really sort of curious about in the way it's maintained over there. Um, I also like want to show you all a few more covers. So Dreaming of You, you all saw the previous cover, this one, and that, that one. There's no female on either, but eventually she shows up. So the heroine character eventually, we do get a cover of that. And then the J.D. Robb series, again, as I said, there are many, many books. This is just one I found, the first five books together. And you can see the image over there. That's actually Nora Roberts herself. And so for a while, they were doing these covers, but they were essentially trying to get her to dress up like her character in order to have like that image of her female cop also presented there. So she's like, you know, wearing this like very sleek line that she has short hair and she has his sunglasses. And that's how the Eve Dallas character is also sort of described. So they've got Nora to do that for a while. I thought that was kind of a, this fun little cover. Um, I'm going to focus a little bit on my beautiful enemy in the last few minutes. Uh, but I'll just say that the fourth chapter is looking at the questions of citizenship um, in both a very clear political sense, because both of these books, My Beautiful Enemy and Spy Master's Lady, are about women who are um, who belong to multiple nationalities, and it's not always very clear if they are given the rights to belong to both or either one. And there's a lot of actual border crossings that they're doing. So these are both historical romance novels; they're not contemporary. They don't take on questions of immigration and you know who's a legal uh, person in which country, but they are interested in that, and they really describe that quite well. And to me, that is like a much more um, clearly political statement about citizenship, but all romances in some form are interested in the question of where does a woman belong? And who determines if she is a member of a particular community, whether it's a cultural community, a political community, and so on. And so all romance novels, so I don't know how many of you like watch versions of like the romance novels that show up during Christmas time, right? Like the Hallmark movie, where she moves from the big city to the small town. Oh, does she fit in? Doesn't she fit in? Who gets to decide if she fits in? So they're always sort of interested in that question of, does a woman get the right to determine what her citizenship is and what her membership is in a community and how people are constantly trying to encroach on that right to tell her, yes, you belong if you fit this criteria and no, you don't if you don't and why that that place is especially slippery for women. As we all know, even today, so much of the belonging to any particular place is uh, dependent on your relationship to a man, right? Like where's your father from and who did you marry? And so much of women's political citizenship is sometimes taken away from them based on that relationship or lack thereof, right? So I think there's a larger issue here that they're considering. And there's also, you can also see it happen on a very small scale, the small town girl, et cetera, right? So those two books are kind of interested in that. Again, and I gave you all two covers for this one because you have a similar one, but it's an extra, extra pack. Uh, <laughs> for the longest time, I avoided reading this book because of that cover. I just, I couldn't stand it. Um, but I also couldn't stand the style of naming of the books that was very popular at one point. So if you'll remember, it was like Time Traveler's Wife, Mapmaker's Daughter. It was all men's apostrophe S lady person, right? Like I got very irritated. And so I avoided it. It's a fabulous book. 
everybody should read it. And eventually, you know, they fixed it and had the, the female character take over. Again, it doesn't actually represent the heroine at all. She's not at all whatever that cover is trying to convey. But it's um, a great look at the issue of citizenship and uh, immigration. Like, who belongs? Yeah. And the last chapter that I took on is um, called Intersections, where I'm looking at two different uh, novels from fairly different time periods, Beverly Jenkins' Indigo and Princess in Theory by Alyssa Cole. Both novels take on all of those uh, previous four axes and they look at race, especially what it means for a Black woman to be in a romance or to hope for a happy ending. Um, so this one is a historical romance and it actually takes place just outside of Detroit while enslavement is still uh, a thing in the United States. And our character is a manumitted, formerly enslaved person. And she's working on the Underground Railroad to get other people out of uh, enslavement and falls in love with someone who is also doing the same thing. But he is much lighter skinned and um, much wealthier than she is. And so that one is taking on all the sort of concerns and all the sort of political um, theorizing that is coming out of Black feminist politics um, in the 80s and dealing with the questions of gender, of sexuality, of labor, whose labor matters, um, as well as belonging, because that is, of course, a fundamental question, especially if we're looking at pre-emancipation, who gets to be human, right? Who gets to claim citizenship uh, in this particular novel? So it sort of brings all of those questions together Princess in Theory is great. It um, Alyssa Cole wrote this um, as a kind of a riff on, if some of you are old enough, you'll remember those emails that used to say like, I am a Nigerian prince and uh, I need your bank account. <laughs> so she took that idea. And our, our female character here is a grad student who's uh, studying uh, epidemiology in New York uh, at, that, at that moment in time. It's a contemporary novel. And uh, she keeps getting these emails about how her uh, her African uh, prince, who's her fiance, is looking for her because they were betrothed when they were kids. And so she's like, what the hell is this? And uh, turns out he is, in fact, an African prince. And she is, in fact, his betrothed. Uh, and her parents took her away from their African country, which was never colonized. So it's a little bit of Wakanda kind of thing in there as well. And so that particular book is looking, again, at... The, all those intersections, right? Like, what does it mean to, like, have issues of those gender, the false dichotomies, the sexuality false dichotomy, especially for a Black woman, um, your labor being devalued because she's a scientist and an epidemiologist at a time when the White House threw out all the stuff that we had on how to deal with Ebola. If you'll remember <laughs> that far back, a lot has happened. Um, and so, uh, and the question, of course, of belonging and citizenship, because she finds out that she has a heritage from a different African country, and of course, has never felt fully uh, a part of the current United States. And so um, my argument is that if you really want to understand romance, you need to go to Black romance, because the story of the Black heroine really epitomizes what is happening in different ways in all of the other novels. So I'll just end. Okay, almost done. I'll just end by doing a quick focus here, again, because Red Ari on Sherry Thomas. My Beautiful Enemy is probably one of my hands-down favorite romance novels. She wrote it in 2014. Uh, Cherry Thomas is a Chinese-American. 
She grew up in China and uh, came to the U.S. as a teenager. Um, very well read uh, by her own reporting in Chinese um, literature uh, by the time she came here and then essentially learned English uh, both formally and by reading romance novel. And eventually when she wrote uh, this particular one, she was trying to also channel or bring in a little something of a genre called wuxia, which uh, if you've seen like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, or House of Flying Daggers, or even Kung Fu Hustle, it's these uh, storytelling forms. They're mostly associated with like uh, Taiwanese and Hong Kong cinema, but it's about these like warriors that have these supernatural powers, right? Like they channel their chi and they fly around and they use swords, but they also have like the chi energy that to which they do battle. And so the Nusha is the female Wuxia. Uh, so if, again, if you've seen Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Michelle Yao is the Nusha in that one. And so we have a character who in this book, this is a young adult prequel to the romance novel, The Hidden Blade, where we see her being a teenager and growing up in Imperial China and sort of getting drawn in into these sort of different units, I hesitate to say gangs, um, who are using this kind of uh, chi to do sort of infighting. And she learns to wield a sword and do other things over there. And then we actually get her um, full-fledged romance, which is partly set in um, near the Tianshan Mountains, so in Northwest China, and uh, partly set in Victorian London. So it like moves across two different spaces, uh, two different time periods. And she herself, we find out when in that uh, YA novel, is uh, born from a, a sort of aristocratic Chinese lady and a British uh, trader. And her father sort of disappears when she's very young. And so she's biracial herself and she moves across these borders. And so I think um, Sherry Thomas does also very interesting things with not the citizenship and border crossing, but she does interesting things with gender presentation because the character also cross-dresses. Um, so when the hero first meets her in the deserts uh, of Northwest China, she's presenting as a man and she like has the affect of a man because she's doing like spy things for her uh, foster father in those places among a lot of warlords. And so she like goes around presenting as if she's a man. Um, but when he meets the hero meets her in Victorian London, she completely looks like a Victorian British lady. So she's completely changed her affect. She's like very withdrawn. She's like very polite. She's like very graceful, like nothing of like the sword wielding or like dagger throwing, you know, person that he knew when they first got together. So again, I think Thomas plays with a lot of those axes that I'm interested in and like how for a lot of people, a lot of women rejecting them and putting all of them together, uh, putting all those parts together is the only way for them to be really happy and that they need certain structures, they need certain kinds of partners for that to actually be a thing that is possible for this heroine. At my request, author Sherry Thomas very kindly recorded a brief video talking about the origins of the novel, My Beautiful Enemy, and how her conception of the Wuxia heroine, or the Nusha heroine, uh, 
Ying Ying, as she's called, in My Beautiful Enemy, came to be. Hi, everyone.、Um, thank you, Jay Shui, for inviting me to talk a little bit about My Beautiful Enemy. First, I am still astonished that a book of mine has been studied by scholars. And second, let's have more academic studies of romance as a genre, which offers such interesting, wild, and sometimes profound insights on women's lives at the time these stories are written and published. My beautiful enemy owes its existence to the wuxia novels and TV adaptations that I consumed hungrily as a child. It differs from most of my other romances, which tend to feature very intimate settings, and has instead for backdrop the great game between England and Russia and the declining fortunes of the Qing Dynasty. Part of that is because the story wasn't originally conceived as a romance, but as some sort of larger action and adventure novel. The idea looked great when summarized in three paragraphs, but the execution was highly lacking. It was when I rewrote it as a romance that the themes of the book emerged. In particular, it was when I wrote these specific words that the biracial heroine Inging, her character, really crystallized. Ever since I was a little girl, everyone around me has always feared for my future. She said, "Everyone except my friend who loved tea from Darjeeling." Mother, Ama, Darren, they all sensed something in her—a wildness, an intractability that would prove to be her undoing. It had been there in mother's anxiety, in Ama's watchfulness, and in Darren's case, something akin to resignation beneath his sternness. Her hopes and dreams, such as they were, must always pass through this inner prism of dread and emerge on the other side, muted, lesser. In this book, everyone worried about her because she was too different. Hers is not a story of learning to love, but of changing her world, world, her circumstances, and those around her, so that she has the space to love and to exist. In an immigrant narrative, her dreams might be fulfilled only by her children, but this is a romance. So at the end of the book, she will be fully herself, with her wildness and intractability intact, yet nevertheless achieve agency over her life. Thank you again. So that's essentially what the book is all about. Thank you for patiently listening to this particular journey. I appreciate you coming along. For the my beautiful enemy,、mm -hmm. do they have like a Chinese version? Or if yes, is it translated by the author herself or by other people? I do not know if there is a Chinese translation. Her she gets translated quite a bit. But I don't know. That's a great question. I'm going to look up her、um, website right now because it often says if she has others. What I do know is right now、um, she is writing. She is entirely focused on writing a Chinese web novel, which is apparently a, a genre by itself.、Um, and so she actually hasn't written a romance novel in English for a while. She currently only is writing in English.、Um, A gender flip Sherlock Holmes, so she has a 19th century set British Victorian、um, Sherlock Holmes, where the character is actually a woman named Charlotte,、um, who is also on the autism spectrum. It's great. It's highly, highly recommend. I mean, I recommend anything that Sherry Thomas writes, but、um, I know for a fact that what she is writing, that is sort of a more classic form, is in Chinese directly. But I don't know if this one has been tried. Translated. I cannot see it on the website, but might be very cool for it to be translated. I'd be curious.、Um, 
she has said that this was this book did not sell well, which is interesting. Um, and it's probably the last romance novel that she wrote. Um, I don't know why. I think it's a fabulous book, um, but I'm sure there's ways you can speculate why it didn't um, get as much traction as it should have. Um, so yeah, that's what I know about that one. Anthony? Uh, online, they're asking, uh, has it been more commonplace for authors of color to use pen names when writing romance novels? Hmm. More commonplace than for white authors? I don't know that I have any data to suggest that, that there's like more use of pen names by authors of color. What was happening, especially in the early days, in the 1980s, pretty consistently, and even maybe in the late 1970s, based on my current research, so it's not so much in this book, but the current research I'm doing, is that directly or indirectly, a lot of authors of color, especially black women, were told, we love your books, we love the story, we want to publish it. Um, can you change your characters to white? And can you, and in the paratext, oftentimes you won't be able to tell that it's written by a black woman. And so oftentimes the names were sort of neutralized for whatever, uh, or whatever they thought was, you know, somehow going to pass. Um, and oftentimes, even in places where uh, you would have seen the house publish a photograph, sometimes the photographs are not there. And so there was that kind of thing. Um, that was happening sometimes. But do currently, like, is there data to suggest that somehow um, people of color authors use pen names more than white authors? I don't think so. I think that's been a fairly widespread practice for a long time, but people use pseudonyms, yeah. And then uh, there's a second question. Uh, can doing this deep dive into analyzing heroine's journeys change? Uh, mm. calls you to rethink your analysis of Mm. Hmm. Did it make me change the way I think about romance heroes? I think so, in that in the first book, I'm really talking about the hero as sort of an individual character, um, and a character in his own right, or what he represents. So in that book, I'm talking about like the hero, I'm, I'm borrowing a theory from the Russian uh, formalist theorist um, Bakhtin about the concept of the mask and the wearing of the mask. And so I talk about the hero as, you know, the romance hero as a warrior. So we got a lot of romance novels at a certain point in time in, t you know, sort of in tandem with the various wars that the U.S. keeps fighting where he's like a military guy um, or he's a mercenary. And so like I was looking at those kinds of representations of ideologies that are channeled through the hero character. Um, so the hero is a capitalist. Um, so again, Lisa Kleypas writes a lot of the times the hero as like a captain of the industry and sort of really doing that sort of Weber form of capitalism gets represented to the hero. So I was really looking at the hero in that way. Whereas in this, in this particular book, especially in the introduction, um, 
when I was trying to find other theorists of heroines, and I didn't find as much theorizing in the genre's scholarship, and I went to uh, folklore, and I went to mythology, and there I found people talking about how uh, there are other um, kinds of stories that imagine happy love stories for women, like in fantasy, where the, f- the male character is essentially like the other aspects of herself that she has never been allowed to have. And so in many ways, the those theorists argue that we can't just discard the love story or say that this is somehow a bad thing or not feminist enough, but it's in, because in fact what those love stories are doing is just using the female, the male character as a projection of parts that we don't allow women to have. And so the desire for the hero is in some ways a desire to have certain parts of yourself and certain parts of power that have been forced away from you. And there, at the end, when the couple unites, you're essentially getting an integration of the heroine of her own scattered parts. And so I think that kind of helped me rethink a lot of the romance heroes. So like I pointed out, our dude with the extra abs, uh, (laughs) Cade, he's a great hero, by the way. he um, initially he's basically just trying to like do a transaction where he's like fooling her into thinking he's helping her out but he actually plans to essentially like sell her to somebody because she's like valued in this paranormal universe for her womb Um, but he starts to feel bad about it and then over time he's the one who sort of persuades her to like be more comfortable with her own sexuality partly because he wants to have sex with her let's be clear like he's not an altruist Uh, but to help her feel like less guilty or less sort of confused um, about it Um, and he also teaches her to fight so that sword that she's holding like a lot of their time together they go on a road trip so A, he teaches her how to drive really fast because she's very conservative about that too but he also teaches her how to actively fight and so when she eventually has to face the, the man who's like trying to buy her, she's the one who rescues herself. But it's because Kate has already trained her in how to fight. And so you get these heroes who essentially become helpmates in a very sort of classic understanding of the word. So I think that's kind of how I started to rethink the hero a little bit. Yeah. What do you think is the appeal of romantic novels for women in particular? Uh, do men read romance novels? If not, why not? And if the books are written primarily by women for women, what do you think their relationship is about? Mm. Okay. So, firstly, I guess the the first part of that question is what why why women why do women like romance novels right? what do women want and so i think the for me the whole drive of the genre is coming from the fact that in our IRL right in real life we are not allowing women to have all their constituent parts together right like we keep pulling them apart and saying like you cannot you can't have this right and we see this all the time in all kinds of places right like we're always like being like, oh my gosh, how did she go, you know, join the military while she's a female? Or how is it, how is she going to like run this important company or be a politician if she just had a baby? And we constantly get articles that say like, how come we never ask this of the dudes? Like, why aren't we asking this of the dudes? So like, that we understand that there is an incompatibility and an, uh, an inequality uh, between the genders when it comes to our actual lives and the parts that some people are just allowed to have without question and other people constantly have to justify or fight for. And so the genre is consistently interested in figuring that question out and making it um, clear that we're not crazy to want these things. 
And that's, I think, why the genre appeals to women so much and why it's constantly been around for several hundred, several, at this point, several decades, um, over a hundred years. Um, I forget the, some of the other parts of the question, Anthony, but I think people asked if men um, like to read romance. There are male readers, as far as I know. Um, some of them, like the former president of my organization, shout out to Eric. Um, who's been a romance reader for a long time, um, Steve Avedown, who's a romance archivist and has also helped me a lot with my research. So I know some men directly and in my own sort of scholarly life. But um, oddly enough, like sometimes I, um, I have a friend whose uh, partner was um, active duty military and he tells me he used to read romance novels because on the base they were there on their in their libraries, and so he read them over there, and that's, I think, actually fairly common. Military bases tend to have a lot of romance novels, and soldiers read them. Um, every once in a while, like, a student will tell me, just actually two days ago, I met somebody, and he said, oh, really? You read romance novels? When I was a young man, a teenager, in um, growing up in the Middle East, in the Arab, United Arab Emirates, somehow they were in their library shelves, and so I read them. Of course, I was interested in the sexy bits, but, and I was like, great, like, do you, if you ever remember what they were, tell me, because that's a very curious demographic, right? Young black man growing up in the Middle East and reading romance novels. So they're out there. Um, they don't always out themselves, but, but they're there. Um, there have also been um, men who have written romance novels in the past that we don't know much about. Oftentimes they did use female pseudonyms. Uh, there's more, uh, a little bit more now. There's more men writing romance, and there's certainly romance novel plots that are male-male romance and queer romance, non-binary romance. So certainly the gender politics is shifting a little bit more, uh, as far as I can tell. So I don't know if I covered everything there, Anthony. The last part was um, if the books are written primarily by women for women, uh, what, do you, uh, what do you think that relationship is? Mm. So the, it, ha it was a commonplace to say that romance is a genre by women, for women, about women. You'll hear it all the time in all kinds of contexts. You look at old interviews and people say this. And I do think it is true that it has for the longest time been cis straight identifying authors writing for cis straight identifying women about cis straight identifying characters uh, who fall in love with cis straight men. Um, certainly that has doesn't mean that it was 100% the case, right? There's always been queer writers and queer readers and you can read certain characters as queer and seeing some kind of signaling and coding in the text. So it's never been a 100% thing, but it has often been a thing. And part of it, I think, is, as I say in my book, that even though the works that I'm looking at and the most of the romances for the last 100 years have been about the straight couple, what's actually happening to me in a lot of the romance novels is that it's not a hero-heroine pairing that they're interested in as much as, or at the same time, they're interested in the heroine being in relationship with herself. So really what the novels are constantly working out is a woman in conversation with herself and learning to love herself and figuring out what bits of herself people told her to hate that she put aside or that people said she couldn't have that she put aside. So in many ways, romance as a genre is, I think, about women for women, you know, etc. because the character is really trying to figure out her love for herself, what she hasn't been allowed to have. So it's a romance with the self over and over again, trying to figure that part out. Just for, for myself, I 
itself. Yeah. How long did the process take? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, writing an academic book, as as my great niece here knows, like I constantly be like, oh, I'm busy, I can't do it, I have to work. Um, it takes a long time. It, it's a really drawn out process. And so, like I said, the seeds of it really were sown when I was finishing up my other book in 2013. And so I've been working on it in some form or the other. Um, I had a sort of manuscript completed, roughly, I think, around 80,000 words um, by December of 2019. So over six years to actually put all of that stuff together. Um, and how did I put it? The process itself. So for me, what I was doing was I was just writing about one romance novel for a conference or a set, two conferences a year or something like that. So that's how those pieces were essentially coming together. So I would present at a conference, get feedback from folks, and then develop that a little bit, and then go read some more and figure out some more things and figure out. So the first four chapters, um, and that manuscript was done, and I sent it to my press, um, Martin Luther King Jr. Day of 2020. And then everything went to hell. <laughs> so the book kind of got lost for a little bit, and then of course peer review takes a long time. So when you're doing academic work, press has to actually find people who are an experts in the field and da 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 and then they have to read it etc and so by the time i think i got the peer feedback it was probably already late 2021 and um one of the peer reviewers though maybe it was both but one for sure was like you cannot have this book without talking about race like it's just not a thing you can afford to do now and i my initial response as is true for anybody who has ever done academic work and got peer reviews is like no you don't understand what I'm doing. You're clearly wrong. And my editor, who clearly is used to dealing with people like me, was like, step away from the computer. <laughs> Go away for a while. Take a few days. And then we'll look at it together, etc. And I think like that, that comment of the feedback was in many ways, as much as we hate to admit it, what peer review is for. Right? It really is to find that thing that they think is really going to make a difference and really going to help the work be better. And so eventually I realized that it wasn't because my my knee-jerk instinct was to be like, oh, she's saying I have to talk about how the same dynamic functions when it comes to race, and that's not how romance novels do it. They don't tell anybody, or there's no character who's like, oh, I can be either black or white, and somehow like I'm trying to be both. Like That's not how it works. But the dynamic I figured out was much more, I think, important and complex, which is like all of those function together, and the central dynamic that the black heroine is trying to get us to understand is about who gets to be human and who gets to have rights um, especially in the American context. So once I got that in there, it went back to peer review and then, you know, through the whole process. And so from first manuscript to publication in June, we're talking January of 2020 to June of 2023. Yeah, so that was the process. <laughs> Takes a long time. Takes a long time for the love story to find its happy ending. Any other questions Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I hope you enjoyed <laughs> seeing the variety of covers <laughs> that are out there as well. Yeah, I'll make a pitch again for both of those books. They're fantastic. Um, strong, strong recommend for all of them. So. I want to thank Professor Kembley for a wonderful presentation, discussion today.
once again, you can purchase copies of Creating Identity online from the University of Indiana Press website. The link is available on Professor Campley's talk webpage on our website. And with that, have a good evening. Enjoy the start of autumn coming soon on Monday. And remember to be upstander if you see a fellow person in need. See you all again next week. Thank you.